Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Not a lot of news out of Brussels this week, so we're going to pivot to London for this episode where the action has been fast and furious during Boris Johnson's first week in office. There's been a lot of heat around Johnson's new top advisor, the arch-Brexiteer Dominic Cummings, a quite divisive figure. Then there's Johnson's Brexit come hell or high water policy and the expanding list of cabinet committees he's engineered to pursue that goal. And then, of course, there's the wall of reality that Johnson will need to spend August thinking about. By that, I mean the EU reiterating it won't be renegotiating the existing Brexit deal. Unless, of course, the UK suddenly wanted to come closer to the EU. But those two views, dear listeners, are fundamentally at odds. It would take a bridge longer than the bridges over the Irish Sea and the English Channel that Johnson himself once mooted to bridge those positions. On that note, I'd now like to welcome to the podcast one of our London-based political correspondents, Annabelle Dixon. Welcome, Annabelle. Thank you. You're in luck. I'm not going to make you talk about Boris, but instead I was hoping to introduce a more serious topic. I know that you've been conducting interviews on it this week, and I'm talking about the culture of harassment and bullying that's been revealed in the UK Parliament in recent weeks. And I should frame that conversation with a compliment, which is to say that at least the Brits are tackling this issue head on. We've heard more than a year of talk and not a lot of transparent measurement or action down at the European Parliament. And really, it's deafening silence across most of the rest of Europe. So maybe let's start by telling us what's been happening in the UK. So this is something that's been in the headlines for about a year now. So it started with an expose by Newsnight and various other lobby correspondents. It's one of these things that everyone kind of knew was happening, but no one really wanted to talk about it or confront it. But eventually, last year, we had a report from the High Court judge, Laura Cox, who published a report last October into bullying and harassment. And she found lewd, aggressive, intimidating behaviour by MPs and senior staff had been tolerated and concealed for years and years. So in July, the QC Gemma White has also published a report. She focused on how MPs treat their employees. That's the many staffers in Westminster and found the most common form of offending behaviour was sort of shouting at, demeaning, belittling and humiliating, often in public, their members of staff. 
Um, so what's happened since? We've had a new independent complaints and grievance policy, which was introduced, and we had a debate on that. And actually, MPs did agree that this complaints procedure should be allowed to look at historic allegations, which has been very much welcomed by staff who think that, you know, we do, we do need to go back. And when it comes to sexual harassment, it's tended to be women who are the primary victims of that form of harassment. But you spoke to a staffer who was forced to resign after being bullied by his MP. What did he tell you? Yes, that's right. So I spoke to a male staffer. He actually didn't want to go on the record because he still works in Westminster, which is actually one of the issues with this whole topic is that there's a real reluctance for people to go public because they're worried about their career. He did talk to Gemma White for her report, but he described to me how there'd been a honeymoon period when he first joined. It was four weeks before things started to deteriorate with the female MP that he worked for. And then he said she began a campaign of what he described as constant degradation soon after joining her office. He told me there was a honeymoon period of four weeks and then there were constant undermining comments which individually would have been throwaway. You shrugged off. But then it became a sort of intake of breath as she came in the room, feeling uncomfortable when she was around, getting comments thrown at you for very little reason. There was a constant reminder that in her view you didn't matter, you were dispensable. He went on to explain that he'd actually worked in a high-pressure call centre environment where he'd been monitored for how long he'd gone to the loo every week, down to the second. But this was worse, he said. The thing I found most upsetting was the constant degradation, interference, nothing ever being right. It stopped me doing a good job. It's just fascinating the parallels with stuff that you see in other parliaments where people feel so bonded to their political parties sometimes that they often overlook or tolerate behaviour they would never tolerate in another environment. What sort of impact did this staffer say that behaviour had on him? So he spoke very frankly about the impact it had had on his mental health, which he said had deteriorated over the course of his employment. And he actually told me that you can get mental health support, which you can get through the sort of parliamentary authorities. But the only appointment that had been available to him was at 5.30 and 45 minutes away from Westminster. So he was saying that, you know, it would have been very helpful to have had more convenient support in Westminster. But he did actually describe himself as one of the lucky ones because he said actually he did have a good support network in place. But he was very concerned. And one of the reasons that he said he wanted to speak out was his concern for those applying for jobs who weren't in the Westminster village. While the names of the bad bosses get around, it's very hard for legal reasons often to identify the culprits. But that means that those who replace those who leave are often people who are outside Westminster who might be coming to London for a first job who might not have that support network in place that that he said he was lucky to have and, and helped him through this situation. One of the things we've seen at the European Parliament is MPs, I think for a very long time, often didn't even recognise they would were doing this or that it was a problem because it was so much a part of the culture to be essentially the little dictator in your office. Do you think the British MEPs know that they're doing this and that this is actually illegal and that it is a problem? Yeah, I I did actually ask him this and he said he got the feeling that she knew she was doing it and that she enjoyed it. Um, What changes did he want to see? He actually was 
talking about the sport and social bar. This is a pub on the parliamentary estate in Westminster used by researchers, which was shut down. And he actually said that wasn't the answer. It, it was one of the things that, that people talked at the time as being a good thing. But he actually pointed out that staffers needed a place to go and unwind. If anything, it should be the MP only strangers bar, which went. But kind of more seriously, he was in favour of a more formal system of hiring staff for MPs. Currently, MPs have autonomy over who they employ, how many people. And it's often referred to as like a sort of 650 small businesses. So he thought there should be appraisals, exit interviews, those sort of formal HR systems in place to ensure that when things do go wrong, it's better for the next person who works for an MP. He also wanted to see more training for researchers and, importantly, for MPs when they arrive. He was sort of sympathetic to the fact that often MPs have never been managers before and might not have experience of managing. And But also, he said, researchers often don't know where to turn for help when they get a sort of order from their MP. Yeah, I'm kind of sympathetic to that idea of management support. But at some level, there's kind of basic human courtesy and niceness as well. You don't you shouldn't really need management training to not scream at people. But I get that that could be a problem as well. (laughs) Um, Seems like some MPs need to be told that. (laughs) Apparently so. Apparently so. Um, Having sat down and sort of had these interviews take place, are you confident that the parliament is in a position to really start tackling this issue? In Brussels, we've certainly had a lot of campaign groups arguing that there needs to be more measurement of problems, that the parliament needs to require, make compulsory training, anti-harassment and anti-bullying training for every single member of the European parliament. And they haven't quite gone that far, where they are effectively now punishing MEPs who don't undertake this kind of training and management support, but they haven't actually made it compulsory. What's your take on the chances of of real action now? Yeah, I think that what's going on in London very much echoes what's going on in the European Parliament and, and parliaments around the world, I should think. But I think that one of the things that struck me is it's something we've been talking about for a year. And All these discussions that I've had in the course of reporting for this podcast, there was a sense among staffers that it was a culture change that was needed as well. They very much feel that, you know, there are independent complaints processes and some people will use them. But it's still a very difficult thing for staffers to take that step and to go through that formal process. And I mean, like in workplaces around the country, around the world, there's always that concern that if you speak out, then it could have an impact on your career. Exactly. And prevention is better than a cure, basically. And all of those formal processes are really about the cure rather than stopping it in the first place. Yeah, I think there was a sense among them that we just need to keep up the discussion about this, talking about this, and really have a complete culture shift so these things don't happen in the first place and I don't think they feel like that's happened one of the people who you'll hear in the panel discussion later was telling me that you know shortly after speaking out publicly about the need for reform in Westminster you know she she was still had a very unpleasant experience in a bar in Westminster and she sort of felt almost like people were trying to shut her up there are still people whose interest it is for this culture not to change Well, on that note, let's hear from some of those people. We're now going to listen to a panel you conducted in recent days. 
I'm joined in London today by three current and former parliamentary staffers who have founded a new cross-party Women in Westminster network. It was set up not just to help more women find work in Parliament, but, the organisers hope, it will also be a place for staffers to share their experiences and try to bring about change. Welcome, Tara, Emily and Ava. If I could start by asking uh, each of you to introduce yourselves. I'm Tara O'Reilly and I work for the Labour Tribune MPs group in Parliament and I've been there for about three years. I'm Emily Casey Howarth. I spent about two years working for Labour MPs in Westminster and now I work in the private sector. I'm Ava Steinhardt. I work for a Liberal Democrat MP and I've worked there since October and before that I worked in the House of Lords for a Liberal Democrat Baroness. Thank you very much. All of you have stressed that you haven't actually been directly bullied, but you obviously talk to a lot of other staffers. And I wanted to start by asking you if Gemma White's recent report reflects your own experiences of working in Westminster and those of your friends. Tara? A hundred percent. Like the, I can't even lie, I can't even pretend and, you know, beat around the bush about it. All of those experiences, I think, that were shared in that report, either I related to or knew someone who did, like with the harassment, for example, that really spoke to me because, you know, I've been groped and I've been, you know, I've had very inappropriate conversations with um, people in Westminster. So, yeah, I'm not surprised at the findings. And could you elaborate a bit more about some of some of the worst things that that you've experienced? Um, like only last week, a guy in the House of Lords bar decided to grope me. Ironically, the same week that I'd been, you know, raising my voice about sexual harassment and bullying in Parliament. And that's just me. But then friends, like, for example, I spoke to a girl who went for a coffee with a lord only a couple of months ago. So, you know, after the Me Too movement came about and, you know, whilst sexual harassment and bullying are on the agenda, she met up with this lord. And as soon as she sat down with him, he basically said to her, the only reason I invited you to this meeting is because I find you really attractive. And then spent the rest of the meeting berating her about why she didn't choose to be a model or an actress instead. And this was in front of MPs. This was in a tea room. And she felt completely helpless. Like, she couldn't really do anything about it because, you know, how do you challenge a Lord who's many years your senior and also so much more powerful than you? And it's just experiences like that that have just been shared with me over and over and over um, over the last few years. And I think the report only really scratches the surface of the kinds of things that are happening. Emily, you've obviously left Parliament now, but but worked there for for what, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what did you experience? What what did you what experiences did you hear while you were working in Westminster? I mean, I think the broadest point of all is that it is just normalised as a place to work. As we said, you know, generally speaking, I was very lucky with my experience in Westminster. I had very supportive employers, and um, I think that has kind of given me the grounds to feel empowered to to speak about this and, and to confront this and to confront the fact that it's just normal. And I think especially people enter into it at a very young age. For many people, it's their first job. So you're kind of 20, 21 years old, and you don't really know what to expect from a working environment. And I think that very much enables the fact that these behaviours are so normalised. And, you know, even if you are not the victim of harassment, the chances of you interacting with somebody who you know has been accused of something are very high. Ava? Um, I would definitely 
second, third that um, <laughs> and completely agree. I think it's the normalisation which is so problematic and that's what General Rights Report did so well is pick out these behaviours that a lot of staffers, because they don't come from a lot of experience and they don't have a lot of background in professional environments, they just assume the normal. And so what General Rights Report did that I thought was really good was that it picked out these microaggressions and these kind of small instances of manipulative behaviour and it told staffers that that is really unhealthy and damaging and wouldn't be acceptable in other workplaces. And I think that's what kind of, when talking about the report, it's important to emphasise again and again, because so many staffers, I think, just, it's not just that they don't feel empowered to do this sort of thing and found groups that empower women across the estate. It's also that they just don't feel even, it's almost like they're gaslighted in terms of they don't think that what's happening to them is as damaging as it is. I think that's just what's so important about the report. And Tara, you spoke about you know people who've confided about some of the things that happened to them. Have they felt able to report this to a sort of higher authority or are they sort of reporting it to you and that, that's where it ends? Normally these things, you know, they're shared over lunch and over coffee with friends and then never reported beyond that. Like I know a few people who were brave enough to contribute to the General White Report and I know a lot of them felt quite relieved having done that because um, it gave them a space to be honest and to you know let it out in ways that maybe they weren't able to with um, friends and family but no I cannot think of a single person who has one tried and succeeded when raising a complaint either with their MP the party or parliament and at the moment I cannot think of a single person who would be willing to go forward with the complaints process at the moment. So largely because the, the higher authority just doesn't exist. There is no HR department. There is no... That higher authority simply does not exist. And I, I mean, actually, there is a complaints process, isn't it? But we have no familiarity with it as staffers. Um, people don't approach you. You're not encouraged. And largely, they, you have no confidence in it. You have absolutely mm-hmm. no confidence that there is a higher authority that exists that would actually be able to support you, which is, I think, a large part of the reason that people don't come forward because they don't see they have anything to gain from doing so. There's absolutely no incentive to come forward at the moment, I think. Like, just looking at, you know, what happened when people like Bex Bailey spoke about her experience within the Labour mm-hmm. Party, when Kate Mulby spoke about her experience. Just to explain a bit more about what those two cases were. Um, so Bex, she shared her experience of being raped by a Labour Party official It was one of the first big stories, I think, that came out when the Me Too movement kind of hit Westminster. And then Kate shared a story of an experience with an MP um, sexually harassing slash assaulting her. And, you know, as women, you know, seeing how they were treated by the media and by colleagues and by MPs and just by, you know, the Westminster institution, I think that, you know, when you look at that now and you look at how people since who've, you know, shared stories how they've been treated and how it's impacted them. There really is no incentive whatsoever to go forward with a complaint. You know, like the report spoke of career suicide and it is that, like it it is that. You are alienated the moment you, you know, Westminster is very much a place where you follow the rules, you do what you're told and and that's it, especially when you're you're not a politician. So to speak out about behaviours and attitudes of, you know, very, very, very powerful people. You know, these are MPs that we're speaking about. And, you know, standing up and saying, you know, this MP or this colleague or this person has done something really awful, that's really difficult. Mm. And at the moment, I don't think the current complaint system or, you know, support that is offered does enough. I think maybe it could at some point, but at the moment, it's not good enough. 
And I should stress that um, an independent complaints process was introduced last July with a behaviour code. Um, Ava, you're a current staffer, you work for an MP. Have you come across this behaviour code? How has it been communicated to staff? Um, I have come across it. Certainly in my experience with my MP, they've taken it very seriously. And I know other MP independent offices which have done that too. And we've got it all printed out on the walls and everything, um, (laughs) which is very nice. But I think also, I mean, I would stress that this behaviour code came in you know, only last year or something. Mm -hmm. I think it was right before I started working in the House of Commons. Which is crazy. Exactly. The fact that there's nothing. It's it's so crazy. And it's all up to the MPs whether they take that behaviour code seriously or not. And so there is a huge disparity between the officers that take it seriously and the officers that don't. Mm -hmm. And there's no incentive really for MPs to take it seriously, like the Valuing Everyone training that came out a few months ago. And I would stress it's still in the pilot programme, I think. So it's not been something that's been around for very long but it's something like 35 MPs out of the Mm. 650 have done it and so there obviously needs to be incentive for MPs to you know to just say the behavior code again and again until they all learn it as part of their training MPs don't have any training so you know I would say moving forward that would be something that seems just intuitive for any career to have a little bit of when you train any (laughs) job being an MP is not a small job it's something very serious you're representing tens of thousands of people you Mm -hmm. should actually be getting the best training and the best support because you're doing a disservice to democracy if our MPs aren't supported and trained and you know the best they could possibly be yeah I think that is a really big part of the problem you don't even have you know somebody coming in and saying this is how I would advise you structure your office these are the responsibilities that this person should have these you know it is all kind of done by word of mouth it is literally a case of MPs knocking on the corridor and saying hey sorry how many members of staff have you got like what (laughs) what and you know how much do you pay them how does this work and I think that's you know it's so much a part of the problem is that the whole structure of Westminster is, is just I mean, it's just fundamentally flawed, isn't it? You know, and I would also stress that there are some incredible things about Westminster. And I think, you know, that that was a big part of our Women in Westminster group is how lucky we have been to have found each other and to have had some fantastic experiences in Westminster. But there are a huge number of people who've had really, really difficult experiences there. And there are things that can be put in place to avoid that. And I think step one let's just train them you know and, and do you think it should be mandatory absolutely I, you know really? i think especially when you're in a situation now where you know the political situation is so volatile we've got new mps coming in left right and center 2017 election a considerable number of those people did not think they were going to wake up and be an mp right. and you know let's and give them a break it really tough right let's like... give them a chance let's let's help them mm-hmm. help us <laughs> yeah and there's i like it's worth stressing even though it's not something people think about a lot but there's no mandatory requirements of any sort to be an MP. So it's just whoever that community feels like best represents them. And, you know, there are hundreds of MPs out there that don't have any management experience. And that doesn't mean they're bad MPs. It just means that, like with any career, they would need a couple of manuals even. But, you know, it should be a training where they sit down. It should be something which is attached potentially to the independent parliamentary standards units, budgets and things like that. You know, there's lots of creative ways that you could do this. And I think the House just needs to be willing to commit to exploring those. And I think that's also a huge part of the problem why these behaviours continue because they will just kind of speak to colleagues who've been there for years, who are old timers, who are lords, who are this, who are that. And, you know, a lot of those people are 
their mindset is in in a very different time and things don't progress in Westminster in the way that they should because it's everything's just done by word of mouth it really is it's it's incredible and dare I say maybe a little bit scary for people to hear <laughs> like how insanely disorganized it is but it's true one of the things that Gemma White concluded was that employees of MPs were vulnerable because they were directly employed with many considering any form of complaint as career suicide you've sort of touched on this but this idea that you're directly employed and sometimes it's it's just one of you in an office with an MP or or two do you think that that has an impact on not sort of checking MPs behavior Ava I'll let you come in there um yeah I'd say Absolutely. Like it's a very, very isolating place, Westminster. And for most people, they just sort of get dropped in and they don't know anyone. And like Emily was saying, a lot of them are straight out of university. They don't have any experience. And so they're coming in kind of having been given this, what I remember certainly felt like your big break, you know, you might have spent years thinking or dreaming about working in this place and you're suddenly there and you're given no training and you don't know anyone. And I'd say from my experience, I've been very lucky not just to have a very supportive employer, but also to have a very supportive group of staff members around me since the Lib Dems are such a small team. But obviously that's not something we can rely on to be the same in the future. I mean, hopefully not. Um, but also it's not, something, it's not something you can build your standards procedures around because, you know, the aim is to have larger parties. So I would say it's quite a unique experience, but that's actually been a totally something having spoken to Emily and Tara and having compared our experiences through the Women of Westminster network and kind of talking having these conversations it's something that's been really different about our experiences and it's kind of thinking about trying to build networks where staffers feel supported and like they can have this really close community around them of other staffers who understand because it's such a unique experience like I think we've stressed already that it's so important to build those support networks. What about people who aren't in a network, the number of staffers who might be going through this but don't feel able to talk about it? Tara. Oh, God. Yeah, sorry. Looking away. It wasn't going to be me. (laughs) Um, Just thinking back to when I, you know, started working in Westminster, I was handed my pass, dropped in. My boss was finally, you know, got a really great relationship with my boss, but I think he was a little bit sick of me by then because I had to go everywhere with him because I didn't have a pass. And I was off on my own and didn't know a single person. I remember it was really lonely. I found the first few months really difficult you know and made most of my friends in the toilets and I think that's how I met Emily Um, (laughs) but how Westminster operates is that so many offices are you know just one staffer with one MP most of the time the MP is not in the office and the staff is just there by themselves and you know you are very isolated you do have to push yourself to meet people and to have support networks. It's not like a normal office where you're sat next to a bunch of people who, you know, you'll eventually go for lunch with and you'll eventually go for, you know, after work drinks with that. You really have to try to enter those circles where that happens. So I imagine there are a lot of people in Westminster who currently don't feel that they have support networks of of any kind. And hopefully with Women in Westminster, we'll be able to reach into those, you know, groups of people who currently don't have support. It's so important to talk about this within the context of this year in Parliament and how bad things were getting with the Brexit stuff and how kind of low everyone's mental health has been getting. Can you expand a bit more on that, on on the impact that Brexit's had? Yeah, of course. It's just been 
I mean, I think everyone who works in that building felt just, it was almost like anxiety was in sort of the corridors and the air. And what's this because of these sort of knife edge votes? That I, the yeah, I think it was the momentousness of the decisions being made around you, the feeling that like at any moment, if you misstepped or if, you know, an MP voted one way or another, some of these votes were three votes that decided, you know, whether we'd get a soft Brexit or potentially, you know, if we're heading towards a no deal now, that's, they're not small decisions. And I think putting 650 individuals underneath that kind of pressure has a knock-on impact on everyone who works for them. There were protesters sort of yelling at you every day when you come in, even at the staff entrance, which seems just a bit, a bit much. And the whole country was under so much pressure and Westminster was the pressure point and over to your point about the, you know, the votes and the fact that this is going to change people's lives. This is going to change the course of history. This mm-hmm. is very, very important stuff. And it is quite easy to forget that you're in the middle of it and you forget that you're like, oh, that's why I'm so stressed. This is actually a really big decision. And yeah, it's come to define so much of our experience. I think we've actually forgotten how difficult it is. And just explain to me a bit about the role that you play when behind the scenes, you know, as these MPs their name comes up against a vote, but you're the ones that have to deal with the mail, the emails, the letters, answer the phone. Tell me the sort of things that you've had to come across, starting Um, with you, Ava, in in the build-up. I mean, I think that being that public-facing part of the MP's office is always hard, and I'm not personally a caseworker. I just try and support the caseworkers in our team, but I can't imagine how difficult that job has become. I know certainly for our office, we didn't get any death threats before any of the Brexit stuff, but we got several since the stuff started to heat up from January kind of to April. And that was obviously a massive strain on the caseworkers at the time, but also just you're sitting next to the phone and you're answering it. And, you know, if your MPs on the TV in the chamber saying something which to some people in the country or you know, however many large percentage of people in the country is very inflammatory. You know, there would be lots of calls coming in, sort of people just ranting incoherently about how it's a lot of pressure. Um, and you're also at the same time trying to keep up with, you know, briefing your MP on legislation, which was coming through, because at this point there was still legislation that's sort of, you know, policy happening, important policy issues like the domestic abuse bill came out the other day. And you're sort of desperately trying to flick through and get some perspective on things. So yeah, I think it's just a bit of a, it's a funny balance. And I'm sure Tara and Emily will attest to this as well. But you're also kind of the one reminding your MP to eat lunch or take a break or, you know, come in at 10 today, not nine, because you were there from 1am. So it's a funny role to be in is kind of... I think you explained that perfectly. Like that is exactly what it's like to work for an MP. You kind of become part staffer, part friend, part babysitter, you know, the relationship between a staffer and an MP is so unique. Mm-hmm. It's so, so, so unique. And some people do have really awful experiences, but then sometimes it it is quite a wonderful relationship, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes. What other changes do you think need to be made for there to be a proper culture change? So many MPs are good people who are just trying to do their best by their employees and their constituents. And that's true, but there is probably a small proportion that isn't. I think there needs to be some teeth in all of this discussion. And I think one of the biggest issues that they've encountered kind of looking into this, and it sort of touches on it in the Gemma White report, but the idea that if you don't vote an MP out, there's very little you can do to really limit their powers. And, you know, you can take the whip away from someone, but that doesn't always 
mean a lot. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think it's a conversation that needs to be had with IPSA, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Unit. And I think a budget needs to be tied in with disciplinary practices in some way. I think the relationship that IPSA and the power and imbalance, I guess, between IPSA and MPs' offices is really interesting because I think a lot of MPs are still quite, whether they were there during it or joined after, they're still very traumatised by the expenses Mm. scandal. I think Westminster sometimes forgets that. But MPs are terrified of being, you know, pulled up for, you know, buying a 20 quid stapler instead of a 10 quid one and that and that kind of thing. And that then impacts how they pay their staff mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what they spend their money on. But whilst MPs' offices are technically considered small businesses, the power and control that MPs actually have over how they employ their staff isn't that flexible. It's a very unique situation. So IPSA sets the budgets, IPSA writes the contracts, but you're still considered to be employed by the MP. Mm-hmm. So I've had friends who, one friend in particular, who has been in Westminster for longer than me and has worked for various different MPs. And each time you move to a different office, you're considered by the house to be a new starter. <laughs> so things like sick leave, things like redundancy if there's a general election. No matter how long you've been in the House of Commons, you're still considered to be a new employee. And so with that, you know, if a person is currently working for someone who is treating them poorly, there is no incentive at the moment for them to try and leave or move and work for another MP because when there's this threat of a general election all the time, Mm. say tomorrow, you know, next week, why would that staffer then try and move on to another job because if that MP then loses their seat they won't it's it's very weird the relationship between IPSA and um, MPs and I think that's something that needs to be changed. Also I think kind of maybe the public perception that MPs are paid a significant amount of money and I think there is the assumption that that also is the same for staffers it's absolutely not. It's, you know, especially not for the hours you're working. The what, what is the sort of salary that uh, staff is on? Um, it really ranges. I mean, you hear people. I would say probably twenty three to twenty eight is probably mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I mean, you're not you're you're unlikely to be earning more than twenty eight. You know, especially considering we're in the middle of London. Yeah. Obviously, living costs are very high. But yeah, I think just the assumption that we are in some ways very lucky. And we know we know we are very lucky and we know we are very lucky to have had these experiences, but we're not paid a fortune to do it. You know, it's very hard work. It's extremely demanding. And MPs, again, as you're so right, there is this weird kind of flexibility in that their budgets are very small. And especially those who have, you know, significant amounts of casework and they need to provide support to their constituents. How do they pay their staff as more? They completely max out their budgets, most of them. And you know, they're not trying to hurt us by not paying us more, but IPSA aren't giving them any more money. And there's, I think you hear sometimes of MPs writing to IPSA and asking for more and, but there's nothing, there is, there is never anything. So it's a, yeah, it's a very unique place. What piece of advice would you give to an MP setting up their office? Um, I'll start with Tara, go along the line. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Find the MPs who have high retention rates with their staff and ask them what they do and look at what they do and use that as a starting point. There are some MPs whose staff have worked for them for years and years and years and years Mm -hmm. and and that says something, you know. 
So I'd say seek out friendship with people like that first. That's actually great advice. I don't know if I can top that. But um, (laughs) that would definitely be my first advice as well. And I think the second is probably just remember to ask your staff if they're all right. And it means a lot to us. You know, you'll keep us around. And again, I should reiterate, you know, we have all been, relatively speaking, very lucky. But I know there are a lot of staffers who have never, ever, ever been asked if they're okay. And it it would mean a lot. Yeah, again, hard to top. Um, Sorry, it's cool to come to you. (laughs) I think just read the Gemma White report and understand that you're entering this very bubble type environment where there is this history of abusive and manipulative behaviours and try and be that change. We can't afford to wait another few years and have a new group of MPs come in and then make all the mistakes and then learn from all the mistakes again. Like, this is change we have to see happen sooner, especially given the political environment we're in and that it doesn't look like it's going to ease up anytime soon. So, yeah, just understand the context you're entering. Great advice. MPs, take note. (laughs) Tara, Emily, Ava, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experiences. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the prominent backbench Tory MP who is known for his love of parliamentary tradition, will be in charge of implementing reforms after he was appointed leader of the House of Commons last week. He was unavailable to talk to the podcast about his plans and the role, but sent us the following statement. I hope to lead by example in demonstrating kindliness and generosity to all those in Parliament. The brand new Valuing Everyone training, which I am looking forward to undertaking, promises to be instructive to even the saintliest of members. I hope it proves popular. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Please take a minute to rate or review us. We'd love to improve and also spread the word to others who might enjoy this podcast. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So my big thanks go to Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray for making this episode possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.